you know, we have a wonderful Savior, and we also have a wonderful music team at Hilpie Bible Chapel. Thank you so much for doing uh, it all, uh, Pram and others who are involved in this wonderful ministry. You know, the music team does a lot of work, a lot of preparation. And I know it to the details because I'm the elder in charge of the music ministry. There's practices that happen throughout the week. And when they come together on Thursdays, they practice. And they practice here right before the family Bible hour for about half hour. So a lot of work that goes in there. But when Prem was here this uh, morning at 11.15 to open and begin the family Bible hour, and I'm really good at math, and I counted the number of people here, there were 10 people. Make sure this doesn't go in the record, okay? There were 10 people. I know we have a new schedule. We start at 11.15 now, not 11.30. But 10 people in an auditorium of 218 people, that's like what? 5%. And that's not good. I think we need to step up a little bit. At about 11.10 or so, start moving the side. And maybe we'll have our ushers use the bell a little bit more. And if not, we'll buy a big trumpet. We're going to look at the trumpet this morning. And throughout the book of Revelation, we'll make sure this works. All right? All right. Let the recording start. Three, two, one. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, Loving Family. Revelation, chapter 1. And we'll look at a very important and a good passage today from uh, verse 9 to verse 20. In the summer of AD 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire that burned for six days and seven nights, consuming about three quarters of the city of Rome. You know, the people accused Emperor Nero at that time for the devastation that claimed nearly one-third of the city and Nero, in turn, blamed the Christians for it. So he ordered the arrest of this small sect of people in the city of Rome, and he tortured them. And because of the torture, this small group of people turned in the other Christians that were there in the city. And, they, and he put them to death, many of them. And in their very deaths, they were made subjects of sport for they were covered with hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set to fire. And um, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero was known for his brutal execution of Christians. He killed some of the apostles. He killed Paul and Peter. The existence of church in and of itself was, was in jeopardy right then in the first century. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Would the church survive? After Nero, there, come a guy, there came a guy by name Domitian. He was a persecutor of the church as well. He made a law like this. It goes like this there that no Christians, once brought before the tri tribunal, should be exempted from punishment without renouncing his religion. And he used all sorts of ways to persecute the Christians as well. It is said that he tried 
the only living apostle at that time, Apostle John, he put him in boiling oil, but John miraculously escaped unscathed. And later, Domitian banished John in the island of Patmos. This is about 80-95 time frame. And it is said that in the island of Patmos, John was put into forced labor and he lived in a cave and the persecution did not stop. And the Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Would the church survive? Now by this time, at the end of the first century, there were several churches that were established in Asia Minor. Paul established quite a few churches, and there were other churches that sprang up in Asia Minor. But even in the midst of all these persecutions, some of the churches started becoming cold. Some of them lost their first love. Some churches, their priorities were, were not right in the right place. They were compromised. Some churches embraced pagan religions and pagan practices, and some embraced false teachings. Would the church survive? Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And it was at this critical time in church history, even in the first century, the book of Revelation was written. It was, it was really a message of affirmation to the churches. Maybe they were going cold. Maybe they were getting persecuted more than ever, and the persecution was increasing. So it was a message of affirmation that Jesus was in control of the church. That he promised that he would build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The church at that time really needed this message in the book of Revelation. Now John needed this vision that we're going to take a look at, which is the vision of the Lord, the exalted, the glorified God himself. How about today? The world hasn't changed a bit, has it? The persecution has only increased. Think of the paganism and the perversions in the church today. It has only increased. I was talking to someone yesterday who called me after a long time, and I asked him which church is he going to, and he said the name of that church, and I visited the website to check out the details of that church because I was a little skeptic about what he shared. And uh, right there on the website, right next to the denomination was a rainbow symbol. Very, they call themselves inclusive, embracing kind of church. The local churches seem to be getting colder by the day. You know, the deltas and the omicrons of the current situation in the world is shifting the priorities of believers and the church today. Is the church going to survive? With the promise of God, of the Lord Jesus, would it stand still? What does the church need today? What the church needs today is a very fresh look at the Savior, a very fresh look at the glorified Jesus. What the church needs today is a fresh look at the promise that it is the church is his church. 
It is not the church of the elders of the local church. It is not the church of the body. It is the church of the Lord Jesus. And he promised that he would build and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. A very fresh look at Jesus. A very fresh look at Jesus. John is about to see a vision. It is the vision of the Lord Jesus. We're going to go through the passage in one stretch, and you will see a lot of red letters in this passage. And not only here in this section, but also in chapters 2 and 3, you're going to see red letters if you have the red letter Bible. You know what I mean. You know, these are the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You know, outside of the Gospels, you see the red letter words in the book of Revelation only. So we'll uh, take a look at these verses from 9 to verse 20. Sorry, Larry, we're not going to take a look at chapter 2, verse 1 today. Starting in verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the, living, I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands of the seven churches." This all started in the island of Patmos in um, AD 95, 96. So the island of Patmos is about a very small island, about 10 miles long and about 6 miles wide in the, uh, in the Aegean Sea, about southwest of the coast of the Asia Minor. So John was there. Why was John there? He says right there in verse uh, 9, because of the word of God, because of the testimony of Jesus. There was persecution because he was embracing Embrace the word of God. He was true to the testimony of the Lord Jesus. And what happened to him? He was banished in this island of Patmos. Now, in the island of Patmos, he receives this vision. Now, he's the last of all the apostles. And then he starts writing this, uh, this book. And by the time he started writing, he had seen all the visions now. He's ready to write. He knows the end. He knows the vision he knows what's going to come at the end, and he's in a very blessed, privileged position to whom all these have been revealed to. 
But look at how he addresses himself in verse 9. I, John, your brother. I'm not an elite apostle. I mean, he was an apostle. I'm not in that supreme position to present what has been given to me. I'm just your brother. I'm just the messenger here, and I'm a fellow partaker of the tribulation. He's not saying, just because I got banished, I'm special. You know, I'm chosen to suffer for God. He's just associating himself with the churches, and he's saying, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation. And then he uses three words there, tribulation and kingdom and perseverance. Three amazing words that John uses here. So the church is God's kingdom, and it was promised persecution. Persecution was promised to the church. The tribulation was promised. It's a package deal, but also in the package deal comes the perseverance, because John knew at this point in time the church is going to persevere, and we will persevere with the church in, in, in the midst of tribulation because we are in the kingdom of God. Verse 10, I was in the spirit. John was in the spirit. Now, John seems to mention that this is a special event. I mean, this is not like a regular quiet time and he was filled with the Spirit of God. It's not, it's not that those are true and important, but this is a special occasion because it says, I was in the Spirit. The, the, the meaning is, I became to be in the Spirit. So either he was controlled by the Holy Spirit in a very special way, or he was taken to an elevated devotion by the Holy Spirit in which he needed to be prepared to be given the visions that he was given throughout the book of Revelation. So he was there in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day. So some believe that this refers to the day of the Lord as in um, a futuristic event. Or uh, the futuristic time of judgment or the reign of the Lord. Some believe that um, the Lord's Day refers to the first day of the week, Sunday, which uh, became a very significant day since the resurrection of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And it's a very interesting phrase that John uses here. He says, it is the Lord's Day. Now, the formation of that sentence occurs only twice in the New Testament, here in um, Revelation 1.10, and uh, also in 1 Corinthians 11.20, when talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. And uh, that means this is something that's pertaining to the Lord. Why? Because he either claimed it as his own, or he set it apart, or because it was designated to commemorate some important event that was pertaining to him, or because it was dedicated to honor him. Now you see that in the New Testament after the Lord resurrected. People started calling the um, uh, calling or, or Sunday an important day in uh, the church's calendar, the first day of the week. You see several mentions of the first day of the week, of the first day of the week. And even in the first century, the, it is said that the churches started calling the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. So it is a very it probably is a simple thing to believe that the Lord's Day mentioned here is the first day of the week. You don't have to complicate things here. So he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now the word loud is used quite a few times in the book of Revelation. 
about 81 times. The word uh, is the word mega, uh, which is also mean, which also is translated as great. So in the book of Revelation, you're going to see a lot of great things. Great wind, there was great earthquake, great mountain, a great star. And again, as James mentioned last week, the book of Revelation is a book that contains things of significant proportion. So it's a loud voice. It's important. In the mind of the Lord, this needs to be communicated to the churches there and to the church today. And the voice is like the sound of a trumpet. Now, the voice that uh, John heard was not the sound of a trumpet. It is like the sound of a trumpet. Now, if you look at uh, the significance of trumpet in the scriptures, trumpets are always used to announce something that's very important, very significant. And you see trumpets being used in, um, in the Old Testament, and we, uh, we have the Feast of Trumpets there in the book of Leviticus. And uh, even in the book of Revelation, we will see that the word is used about seven times when there is a need for major announcements. Now here is the voice. And uh, the first thing that John hears is, Right. Right. And it's, it's a command. And the first red letter there in this section, you're going to write this. It's a command from the Lord. And this command is used 12 times in the book of Revelation. You will see time and again the Lord telling John, John, you need to write this. You need to write this. And, and to the churches in uh, chapters two and, th- 2 and 3, for every single church, the Lord says, To the church of Ephesus, write. To the church of Sardis, write. To the church of Thyatira, you get it, write. Except in one section in uh, chapter 10 and verse 4, as John was used to this command and he was preparing to write, the Lord says, don't write that. Just to make it clear. And he said, um, write and send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. As you can see there on the slide, you see the seven churches there. The seven churches are the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these are seven churches in Asia Minor. The couple things that need to be noted here. Notice that John was not asked to write to a denominational headquarters. John is asked to write to seven local churches. These are independent churches. They were not, I mean, they probably had the same, I mean, they had the same faith, same fundamental doctrines and so on, but the situations in each of the, each of the church was different. And that's why you would uh, see unique messages and unique exhortations being given to each of the churches. And secondly, it is not that there were only seven churches in Asia Minor. Even though it says seven churches, there were other churches in Asia Minor. For example, if you see Laodicea, you see Colossae, which is very close to Laodicea. And and Paul wrote a letter to to the city or the church in Colossae, the book of Colossians. So there were other churches, but for some reason, the Lord thought that the situations in these seven churches probably would be representation of all the churches in the area. Not only that, it probably is enough for its exhortation to go to the churches of all generations and all ages. We don't know. 
Well, in addition to these messages being applicable to today's church, some believe that each of these churches represent certain time period in church history. And um, there are some wonderful parallels that can be drawn from what we can see in the letters that went to each of these church and what was seen in, the, in, in church history in those specific time periods. For example, theologians believe that, uh, that if the, the church in Ephesus probably represents the apostolic period from AD 30 to 100 because Ephesus represents the post-apostolic period where the church started to lose its first love. So it's possible that it happened that way. And Smyrna talks about the persecuted church, Pergamos, the state church, Thyatira, the papal church, Sardis, the reformed church, and Laodicea, the apostate church, representing today's lukewarmness in the churches. Interesting parallels, but you cannot really pinpoint to a verse and say this is what it refers to in church history. But the specific command that John receives here is write these things only to these seven churches as to what you see. Write in a book what you see. He's going to be shown something here. And what is going to be shown is super important. Now imagine these seven churches are going to receive this entire letter. They're probably written in a scroll and they're going to take a look at the, look at the scroll, receive the scroll and start going through the scroll one by one, I don't know, page by page or section by section. So when they take a look at the first section, they're going to see this vision that was given to John before they even go to the specific letter that was sent to that particular church. Or maybe the church in Ephesus would have thought, oh, probably we're going to get some good reports from, from John through the Lord or from Lord through John and let's go right into our section in chapter 2. No, 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 no. You need to go through this section first. It is a vision. It is important. Everyone needs to go through this vision first. Why? Because it is the vision about the person of the Lord Jesus. It is really a revelation of who he is. And as James pointed out last Sunday... The book of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. It is the revelation of the Son of Man to the very detail of his clothes and his hair and his feet and so on that we're going to take a look at, something that the church needed to take a look at on that particular day. Why was it important? Because Jesus is writing this letter to the churches, particularly concerning the things that soon must take place, and the one who is worthy to bring it all to pass, the one who is worthy to bring about the judgments that will come about in the seven-year period, the one who is worthy to come down as a king and rule the world with truth and justice. Who is he? Who is this Jesus. They need to grab hold of the truth of that. They need to have a real understanding of this particular truth. A lot of things are going to happen from this point forward. The Lord Jesus is going to warn the churches. The Lord is going to um, show a vision of who he is when he sits on the throne in heaven. And the Lord is going to judge the nation of Israel. 
And a lot of catastrophic events are going to happen that would shake the earth. Who is the one who has the power to perform it all? Everyone needs to have an understanding of that. So here is John in the spirit on the Lord's day. A loud voice comes and he turns to listen or to hear that voice. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, what does he see first? He sees this glorious vision of the seven lampstands first. Seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, seven in general, as you know, talks about perfection or completeness. And gold is a very costly metal, and it typifies the deity of Christ or typifies the glory of God. And uh, John is... Uh, told later that these golden lampstands are, are a symbol of the churches. Now, if you see these lampstands, it is said that there are seven golden lampstands. Now, in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, there was one lampstand, one shaft, and there were seven branches that came from that one, one shaft. But in the New Testament, or in, um, in Revelation here, it is seven different lampstands, and there was one who was in the middle of the lampstands, who was like the Son of Man. So what does that represent? That represents that each church is an individual church. Lampstands are churches, verse 20 there, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 20. And uh, the Lord is in the midst of the churches. And in the middle, one like the Son of Man. You know, the term Son of Man is a very interesting term. It is used in multiple places in the Gospels but never used in the epistles, except once in the book of Hebrews, which is really a quote from the Old Testament. And this name, the Son of Man, is a favorite name for the Lord. You know, he, he, used, he used to refer himself as the Son of Man. It really highlights the humility of the Lord, the humanity of Christ. But the main thing that we want to highlight here in Revelation chapter 1 as to the importance of the Son of Man is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel chapter 7. If you, look, if you remember Daniel's uh, book and the uh, things that we went through a couple years ago in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision and it goes like this, I kept looking at the visions and behold the clouds with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man is coming. Now, this is where you compare Scripture with the Scripture. And from Daniel 7, you go to Revelation chapter 1, and this is the same Son of Man that is spoken of here in Revelation chapter 1. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So time has come now for the prophecy of Daniel to be fulfilled. And the second thing that we want to highlight here is that the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, is in the middle of the seven golden lampstands. Isn't that interesting? The Lord is telling John, who is being persecuted, who is probably aware of the conditions of the churches in Asia Minor, 
probably saddened by the conditions. And the Lord's saying, I'm there. I am there. Where, Lord? Right there in the midst, in the middle of the churches. Larry read for us from chapter 2, verse 1 this morning at the breaking of bread, where it says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's not only just here in the middle doing nothing. What does Jesus do in the local church? If you want to ask the question to yourself, you should go to Revelation 1 and Revelation 2. Jesus walks in the middle of the aisles. Jesus walks to the crosswalk room. Jesus walks to the nursery. Jesus walks to the sound room. Because this is Jesus' body. I'm not talking about the, uh, the, the, the building as such. I'm talking about the church. And when we are gathered here as a church, as a body of believers for corporate worship and listening to the word of God, where is Jesus? He's here. What kind of awe and reverence that should create in our hearts, isn't it? Jesus is here. What a solemn reminder. And, uh, and then John sees the vision and it says, He was clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. He was clothed in a robe. It's not a long, it is a long robe as it says here, but it's not long enough to cover the feet because we're going to see description of his feet later because it was like a burnished bronze. And we don't necessarily see the color of the coat here, nor the material, but we know it is a long one. Now, long coats or robes have been worn by quite a different people in different positions in the Old Testament. For example, the kings wore a long robe. And, um, uh, and people who were in the priestly positions wore long robes. And people who were prophets, prophets wore long robes as well. Now, one thing that differentiates the long robes of the kings or the prophets from the long robes of the priests was this thing, which is the sash. Now, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, you will see that the priests wore long robes, and they would have this sash or belt around their loins or the waist, which really symbolizes or typifies a position of service that they are ready to serve. Remember the Lord Jesus in John chapter 13, he took a towel, and what did he do? He, he, he tied around his waist, and he was ready to serve. But not here. Where does the sash go? Look at the verse again in verse 13 and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, when I was in my elementary school, long, long time ago, we had, maybe from the British system, I guess, for the first two rankers in the top students in the class, they would give a sash. One was a green sash, the other was a kind of a purple color sash, and you know, the first rank and the second rank holders just went around boasting and, you know, uh, prideful and stuff. But it was a position of honor. You're identified in a, in, a, in a big place because you deserve it. And Jesus is now given this sash, the golden sash, 
which typifies that he was there in a lowly position once. He came to serve. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he served, and now he's in the exalted position of a priest with this golden sash, a position of honor and authority. And then verse 14, his head and his hair were like white were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now head and hair were like white, like white wool, like snow. Daniel chapter 7 passage that we took a look at says this. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. It, it certainly speaks of uh, his divine wisdom and absolute purity. You know, Jesus is in the midst of the church in his holiness, in his purity, and he will purify his, his church. And the eyes like a flame of fire certainly symbolizes the all-searching power of the Lord God. Now to the church in Thyatira in uh, chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flaming fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. What is the Lord trying to say here? I know what you're doing. It's, it's even more than that, I would say. It's not just highlights the omniscience of God, which is true, but kind of a piercing, piercing aspect of that knowledge. He sees through things that others don't see in your life. Who can escape the scrutiny of those eyes as of fire? And verse 9, the feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. Burnished bronze, used only once here in the book of Revelation and then in chapter 2 that I just read from. Burnished bronze, chakoli banos. It means the white or shining copper or bronze. Now burnishing, the burnishing process is not a burning process. You know, one of my favorite subjects as a, mechanical undergrad student was this subject called the machining process. I loved the, the different processes, processes that we learned and uh, witnessed and worked on. So remember learning about surface finish process and burnishing is a method of polishing and hardening the surface of a workpiece. Now in burnishing, you don't necessarily cut the metal. Now there's a burnishing tool that has small, uh, very uh, smooth rollers around. Um, a big, uh, big roller, and uh, these small rollers press across the metal that is to be burnished, and um, so they don't cut, but they even out the microscopic peaks and valleys. And when it does that, it hardens the surface. And it not only hardens the surface, it makes it so smooth, producing an impressive mirror-like finish. And uh, they say it is used for many of the military equipments for that purpose, so it can be hard, at the same time shining. It speak of, speaks of his worthiness to judge and also uh, his strength in judgment. Voice like the sound of many waters, and his voice was like the sound of many vo waters. It speaks of the grandeur and the majesty of the voice of God. When the Lord speaks in his church, he roars. He speaks like the loud of many waters. You better listen. 
You better listen to what the Spirit says, to what the Lord Jesus says to the churches. If you've been, if you've been to uh, a place like Niagara Falls, you can stand in awe and uh, not only just look at the, look at the falls in it, fall in its beauty, but also just hear the roar and the thunder of, uh, of the falls. It's, it's really wonderful. Psalm 94 verse, uh, 93 verse 4 says, More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. And now in verse uh, 16, he says, In his right hand, he held seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Right hand speaks of authority. And uh, the stars, as we see in verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, the angels are probably messengers. The word means the one who is sent. Uh, So it's really best to understand this to mean the leaders of the local church who are responsible for the spiritual welfare of the church. So they are in God's hand, but they are mere stewards. The Lord is the chief shepherd, and they are in the hands of God. I like um, one of the authors that I read by name, Walter Scott. Walter Scott says, the stars as a symbol are an expression of, number one, a countless multitude to to Abraham. The Lord said, look at the stars of the heaven. And secondly, it talks about the eminent person in authority or uh, either, either in civil or ecclesiastical. And thirdly, stars also refer to someone who is lesser or subordinate in power in general. And he quotes uh, uh, Genesis 37 and verse 9 where Joseph dreams this dream and he says, you know, I am the sun and you guys are the moons and the stars, you know, you're going to fall before me. And so it's, an, it's a subordinate position and that's probably what is being referred to here. Even if there are leaders of a local church, they are under the authority of the chief shepherd himself. The leaders, the, the leaders of the church are in his right hand. And... Um, And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. The two-edged sword. It's not a very small dagger-like sword that Peter uses to to cut Malchus's ear. The word used there is the word that is used for dagger. And the word used here is romphea. Romphea is only used six times. Only six times, I mean, I should say six times in Revelation, only once outside of Revelation. It's totally used seven times. And six times it is used here in the book of Revelation. And uh, it is in the context of judgment. The only other occurrence of the use Romphea is in Luke chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2 and verse 35, where Simeon tells this about Mary, the mother of the Lord, and he says, and a sword will pierce even your soul to the end The thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So it is, again, a sign of judgment that uh, Simeon said would come on, um, on her. And, and then we see here, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. He is the source of light. And no wonder the angels are the stars and Jesus is the sun. The stars don't have light on their own and they reflect the light of the sun. So there's a quick recap of the symbols and the meaning. I won't spend too much time here. But what is John's reaction? What is John's reaction in um, verse 17? 
John's reaction is this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid, for I'm the first and the last. Now, this is pretty much the reaction of people who have seen visions from the Lord, and we see the examples of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel in the, in the Old Testament. When they see a vision like this, these people were like dead men, and I'll be like dead, gone. The vision was so overwhelming, a reaction of complete reverence. Look at what the Lord does. He comes to him, and again, you see the word right hand used again, which occurs about six times in, um, uh, in the book of Revelation. The Lord used his right hand, a position of authority and honor, and he puts it on him, and he says this, I am the first and the last. Meaning what? I got this, John. I really got this. It starts with me, and it's going to end with me. And the timing is determined by me. And the living one, and I was dead, and I'm alive forevermore. You know, the same John who leaned on the bosom of the Lord Jesus. You know, the same John who outran Peter in, um, in the race to the tomb. The same John who worshipped the resurrected Jesus before his ascension. And the same John who saw the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Now sees him in his glorified state. And he falls like a dead man. And the Lord says, I am the same Jesus. I was dead, but I am living. And also he says, I have the keys to death and life. I have the keys to death and life. I have mastery over death. You won't spend a second here on earth after the Lord calls you home to be with him. You won't here spend a second here on earth. You don't have to worry about it. The Lord has mastery. And the Lord said these things. Write these things in verse 19. The things you have seen, which is the vision here, and the things that are, which, is, which are in chapters 2 and 3 about what he's going to say about the current churches at that time, which is applicable to the churches in all ages. And then he says the things which will take place after these things, which means after the church is taken in rapture. That starts in uh, chapter 4. But the point, I think that the Lord wanted to bring about in this is, I am worthy to judge. This is who I am. The church needs to know this. The church needs to understand to the details of what Christ is doing in the local church today. He's walking among the churches. He's doing his work of cleaning and cleansing the church. And he wants worship and he wants preparedness because he is coming. And if you don't like the book of Revelation, there's something wrong with you. There really. I heard of someone who said, you know, it's all prophecy. Prophecy is going to come to pass anyways, right? Whether you study it or not. Well, that's true. But then there's a special blessing that's been promised to those who study and understand and heed the words of God in this book. Both in the beginning and at the end. You miss the book of Revelation, you miss a big blessing in your, in your life. And Jesus is worthy to judge. 
And the Lord has said that judgment should start in the household of God. That's why he started with these seven churches. The judgment should start in the household of God. And um, there are some promises in the Gospel of John that we will see. For not even the Father judges anyone, but has given all judgment to the Son. He gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. And in the book of Acts, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That day is coming. And the judge is prepared. He's ready. He's ready to judge not only the world or the churches today, but also after the church is taken here from the earth. The church belongs to God. And hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. He is the Alpha and the Omega. Did you know the Omicron comes somewhere in between? (laughs) He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's in control. He is in control. And I trust you had a glimpse of the glory of Christ this morning. I sure do. Do you want to be blessed? In these last days that we live in, in our goal should not be how do I save my life from Omicron? And we should, and we should be wise. You get, you go get or not get your booster shot, I don't really care. But Do not let fear cripple you. Do not rob you and and do not let these rob you of the precious life that you have in Christ and the blessings that will come by reading this book and giving heed to the contents of the book. The living, living for Christ is the only thing that's going to matter in life today. Make the best use of the life that God has given to you. Take a look at the Savior. Take a look at the glory of Christ. And you will be recalibrated to start every day fresh for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Revelation and the promises that have been given to us that as we read and uh, hear and uh, heed the words of God, we will be blessed. We will be blessed. Father, we uh, pray that you will help us to... uh, to do that and to be able to live a life that would count for the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his glorified place that he is in. He is our priest. He intercedes for us. He is our example. And more than that, he is our God. He is our Lord. And uh, we, want to, we want to humble ourselves And we want to uh, bow our hearts before you this morning and worship the living one, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In Jesus' name, amen.